Manjeet Mann is an actress, playwright, theatre producer and writer for young adults. She's the founder of an organisation, Run the World, a not-for-profit which uses sport and theatre as a means of empowering women and girls. This is a theme that threads through her verse novel, Run Rebel, published by Puffin in March 2020. Run Rebel tells the story of Amber, a young girl who kicks against her restrictive family and cultural expectations. Amber is a talented athlete and running affords her the freedom and power that home life does not. This is her quiet rebellion, but it's not enough. Amber wants to determine her own life and for that it has to be all out revolution. There's a lot for us to talk in, about in this powerful novel and I'm really thrilled to invite Manjeet Mann into the reading corner today to discuss it with me. Welcome Manjeet. Hi, thanks for having me. And it is a very powerful novel. Um, I first heard you read this at the Penguin Showcase back in January mm -hmm. and just from that very short reading I knew that this was a book that I wanted to not only read but find out more about what lay behind it. So I wonder if we could start with your heroine, Amber, what yeah. life is like for her and what experiences you pulled on in creating this character. Amber's from quite a sort of difficult home life, as you said. There's a lot of violence in the home and she feels like she's lost her only ally, her sister, Ruby, to... Um, getting married before she wanted to and Amber sort of sees her whole life being planned out before her and she doesn't and she doesn't want that and in terms of the experiences it's it's not um a hundred percent autobiographical novel um but it's definitely like my story I guess so there's a lot of personal experience in there and uh, I never really set out in the early days to like write my story the first version of this novel was very different but it wasn't until I started when I first set up Run the World and there were a group of women who were survivors of domestic violence and their daughters as well. And I found myself sitting there kind of um, saying, yeah, sort of tell your stories and, you know, asking them to be honest and asking them to, to share their stories. And I saw how much it empowered them. There's a lot of shame, I think, attached to domestic violence. There's a lot of shame attached to illiteracy. And I sort of sat there and it took me about a year or so, but I thought maybe I have a story to tell and maybe it would be empowering for me and others to read it. Um, and if I'm asking others to do it, maybe I should try, try it myself. So it never, it, I never planned to sort of be that honest, but um, yeah, I'm kind of happy I, I have actually now because I've had a lot of sort of comments back from readers that have said how much it's helped them. And that's that's when you kind of go, oh, okay, I'm doing the right thing. But yeah, so that's kind of where it's all sort of come from. Mm, interesting. We'll pick up all of those ideas in a moment, but I wanted just to uh, give us a feel for your novel, whether we could start perhaps with a bit of a reading. And it seems to me that the prologue would be a good starting place. Yeah, sure. A wound triggered by a beating, it grew thriving on neglect. It swelled, flourishing on her spine. When ripe, a clotted blister, it crippled her, 
Weighing down on a too small frame for her adolescent age, my mother sat hunchback working, silent. Ignored and ignoring pins of prickly pain pulsing. What's wrong with your daughter? A neighbor asked. She's not sitting or standing upright. It's been weeks. My grandmother looked at my mother as if she were observing her for the first time. My grandmother fell to the floor, crumpled like a sheet falling from a washing line, my mother tells me. Slumped on the back of a motorbike, my mother traveled along dusty dirt tracks through several Indian villages to the nearest hospital. The poison drained, the rotten flesh carved, gouged, burrowed out. My mother concealed her anger. Her mother showed no remorse. The wound, now a scar, the size of a fist, a crater buried between shoulder blades. It is the curse of being a girl, my mother tells me. You are the property of your parents, husband, brothers. You endure, never question it. I question it. Mm, so powerful as a starting point. I think that was the first thing that I wrote actually. And then I think everything sort of came from that. And I knew that I wanted it to be this story of, of three women who have taken different sort of paths. But when they come together, they realise their dreams are all the same, but they've ended up through life circumstances, not being able to live the life they wanted to live. Um, so I was always quite clear that I wanted it to have these three sort of strands of Amber, her sister, her mother. Yeah, mm. and that prologue was the first thing that I wrote. Wow. Trios actually do repeat uh, through the... Uh, story trios in terms of friendship as mm -hmm. well let's where, where to go next because this, mm -hmm. as I say it's so rich and there's so much that we can explore but you've mentioned running the wild you're a runner yourself aren't you I am um, yeah. tell us about how the running impacts on your life I was part of a cross-country team when I was at school but uh, I had to kind of promptly give it up when I got to year 10 because my parents kind of figured it wasn't something that I should do anymore now I'm becoming a woman and I shouldn't be running around the sports field in a little skirt so I had to give it up and that's when I found acting but I took it back up again um, in my, in my mid-20s and it was after my father passed away actually and I found myself a little bit lost very sad and I just didn't really wasn't doing anything for many many months I was just sleeping and I remember I woke up one day and I thought right I'm gonna run a marathon and it just, I don't know where the thought came from. I don't think I'd ever run further than like, you know, a good 20 minutes on a treadmill before. And uh, I just printed out a six month training plan, put it on the fridge and life just kind of clicked back into place. It was that schedule that sort of gave me something to get up and do in the morning. And then the running itself just helped slowly, slowly as the weeks went on, just clear my thoughts and sort of get my life back on track again. Um, so, and then I haven't really put it down since then. And running is very important to Amber and it's part of the reason that she's able to make change in her life. Initially, I was going to make her become an actress. She wanted to become an actress. I thought, oh, take it away from yourself a little bit, Manji. Like, no, <laughs> no don't do that. <laughs> and therefore, I just drew upon the, the power of sport. And I chose running because that's just the one that I know so well. So, yeah, so that is her outlet. To begin with, at the start of the novel, uh, she's a little bit frustrated with school, doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. see the relevance, in, particularly in history, with the kinds of things they're studying, until 
a teacher introduces some texts from political science. There's the anatomy of a revolution, mm-hmm. and that becomes a template uh, for the structure of this novel. Is it a real book? No, it's not. <laughs> I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> I did make it up. I kind of like this idea of a character finding something that you know, they've dismissed all of this time. And I think I took that from a couple of the girls that I worked with during Run the World. And they were just very dismissive of the running. They didn't want to come to the workshops. They didn't see any any point in writing or storytelling. And then, you know, by the end of it, they were like, oh my gosh, this can really, you know, there's always something for everybody. And it just so happened that they hadn't had very good experiences in PE or, or in English lessons. So I quite like that idea of, a character finding something that they've always sort of thought was completely irrelevant and then finding a love for it because they can they can see themselves in it or they can see um, something that can help them in it. So that's where the whole sort of revolution and, and history thread came in. Mm. It came in quite late, actually, in one of my latest drafts. Did it? Because yeah. it seems that it was, well, from reading it, it would seem that it was there from the outset because the whole structure um, is built around this anatomy uh, yeah. of the revolution. So did you have to put that as a template on afterwards then? Yeah, I actually did. I did. And I think it was because I was, I was using other templates. So I think at the beginning, I think Ruby had more of a thread and it was going to be through like Ruby's diaries. And then that just wasn't sitting right. And then it was something else and that wasn't sitting right and then I can't even remember how it came about now but I think just like reading it and putting it away for a while I thought oh my gosh of course there's this whole revolution thing she's rebelling and um yeah then the anatomy of revolution the history lessons came along let's go to the English teacher though because that was a bit of a thread at the beginning and actually there's something very important in uh, one of the lessons I think that does remain a thread through the book and that's to do with truth because Mm -hmm. truth secrets and lies are very prevalent uh, through the story I wonder if we could have a second reading perhaps about that lesson I think it's called truth it is yeah truth English class with Mr. Walker. He talks about truth. It's where all good stories come from. We'll be focusing on autobiographical writing this term. Write your truth. He gives me an extra long icy stare, raising his eyebrows like he's expecting me to disappoint him. Mr. Walker has told me on more than one occasion that I lack creative flair. He had high hopes for me. Because he taught Ruby. Ruby was his star pupil. But words don't flow from my brain onto the page. Fear builds an Everest of walls in my head. I look around the class. No one can know my truth. A pact I made before I could speak. Silence before my first words. The secrets I keep. The fears I carry must remain behind the closed doors of the home they were birthed in. Once again, like most people from estates like mine, it feels like, it feels as though I've lost before I've even started. Mm. And telling the truth is not easy. And there are parts where she's considering telling the truth. At one point, she says, it's always better to tell the truth. I naively think always better to tell the truth. Um, 
there's a sense in which telling the truth is a very dangerous thing to do mm-hmm. yeah uh, I also wanted to just pick up when you were reading there you talked about the estates where I come from and there are quite a few references through the novel to almost the concrete jungle uh, the school itself is not a very conducive place for the students to learn in and I wondered whether environment is part of the brutalizing effect on this family yeah I mean I don't want to make a sweeping statement about everybody comes from a council house has a really bad life but I'm just again I'm just coming from my own experiences and from where I grew up and how that made me feel and it did make me feel like that I just remember like just from the just from my kitchen window I could just see these big high rises just looming over you and there was always this sense of uh, never being able to get away, never being, a, not just not feeling free. And I remember going to friends' houses and they lived in these like really like real posh, the posh end of, of town. <laughs> and these beautiful broad streets with just awfully oh, beautiful trees that blossomed in, in springtime. And it was just, it felt like I could breathe. And I, there was always just this sense of feeling very claustrophobic when I was growing up. And that might not have, you know, maybe I'm putting it all on the estate and maybe that was a lot to do with culture as well and how you just always felt like everybody was spying on you. You know, everybody knew you and everybody knew your family. <laughs> you couldn't walk downtown because somebody would, would tell on you, which I think was probably just my culture and the community that I grew up around at that time. But yeah, it definitely, for me, felt like felt like that was a big thing growing up actually and I always sort of daydream me and my sisters would always sort of daydream like we won't always live here we're gonna live in those big houses and I think it just meant freedom it just meant space Mm. space equals freedom and I I still feel it still it still lives in me actually you know sort of like 30 years later Mm. it certainly came through in your writing there were repeated uh, references to concrete and it felt very almost like the the environment was pulling her down, weighing her down um, in in some ways too. Yeah, I felt like there was a lot of shame attached to where I was from. I don't feel that now, but definitely as a kid. And I just remember sort of people at school kind of going, oh, you're from the council area, aren't you? And it was just so, there's so much shame attached to it. And I think that's sort of, yeah, that's probably why I put it in there as well. It's not only Amber's voice that comes through the novel. Obviously, she's the one that's rebelling. But the other voices, her mother's voice comes through, Ruby's voice, you allow her voice to come through too. I have to say that I was particularly drawn to the mother's story and found her incredibly courageous. Um, Tell us a bit about Amber's mother. Everybody loves Amber's mother. (laughs) I think she might be my favourite character in the book. She is, I think she's everything that I, I think I wanted my, my mother to be. And uh, I think she really, the courage from her comes from some of the women that I, wor- I worked with through the group. Uh, one woman in particular who oh, was in such a dire situation when she started. Like when she wanted to join the group, her husband actually like blocked the door and said, you are not leaving this house. And she stood her ground and she left. And then each week it got easier for her to leave. Uh, she, he would call her throughout the entire session, you know, asking, you know, when she was going to come home. She just stood her ground. And I just thought she was so courageous. 
And by the end of our year together, you know, she'd left and she'd found a safe home and she was working with a charity and I'm still in touch with her now. And um, she's in a completely safe situation now, which is fantastic. So that's where that came from. I, when I started writing the book, I think I had Amber's journey clearly in my head. I had Ruby's, Ruby's journey clearly in my head, but I didn't have the mother's journey. But then as I was working with these women, I was just really inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also determined not to make it all happy clappy, like, because it's, it's still really difficult. And I wanted to keep that truth in there. Mm-hmm. And part of the uh, problem, if you like, is the fact that she is illiterate Mm-hmm. And part of her journey is coming to be a literate uh, adult. And that's incredibly moving too. And the part that Amber and her sister play in that process. Um, I know you were going to read a little bit from the mother's story as well. First words. M-A-T-M-A-T. Now, obviously, we're uh, speaking on a podcast here and people can't see how this poem is set out on the page. Uh And part of this novel, it's not just about the ear. It's also about the eye and what you see and how you respond to that. Um, Can you try and describe for us the way that it looks on the page and how you decided to write this? So it's set out in three columns. So you have the words being sounded out, you have the word, and then you have the sentence, listening to her sound out words is beautiful, mirroring each each word going down the page in the columns. I think I saw it quite visually. I see everything quite visually. I think when I'm writing, I see it almost as if it's being, if it's on a stage or if it's, or the film version. So in my head, I'm I'm literally working as a, almost like the cinematographer. So I'm seeing mother sound out the word and then it will flip to Amber who will be listening. I'm listening to her sound out the word and I'm flipping to Amber and I'm seeing her being completely in love, listening to her mother sound out the word. So it was almost like I was flipping between the two faces. And so when you're reading it off the page, I want you to almost see mother's face, Amber's face, mother's face, Amber's face, mother's face, Amber's face. And that's kind of how I'm seeing it. So that's why it was written like that. So you have to flip between the two. It's a really interesting one to pick up because the minute that I ask you to read it aloud, that experience of listening to you is very different to the experience of how I see it on the page. You yeah. can only you can only read a bit of it at a time. But yes. if you're looking at the page, you're almost taking in all three columns simultaneously. Yeah. And so where you read Amber's bit in one flowing piece at yeah. the end, 
the way that I come to that when it's on the page is not quite the same, is it? Yes, and I could have. That was just um, a decision I made in the moment. But I could read it the other way and have the listening to a sound like words is beautiful broken up. Would it work? Can I just ask you as an experiment to read it again the other way and, and yes. ask to hear what the difference is? Yes. First words. M, a, t, mat, listening, s, a, t, set, two, b, a, t, bet, her, b, u, t, boot, Sound b e t bit out f a n fun words t e ch teach is l a v love beautiful what do you think about those two variations I think hearing maybe one person's voice might make it slightly difficult to follow but possibly if it were two voices maybe it might be easier to follow there is something quite beautiful with it split up I do I do like it Mm. as a listener how do you feel I think as a listener the first one made better sense yeah But like you, I was wondering if that were two voices, what would the difference be? Uh, I suppose I'm just really interested as well in this visual, the fact that you can take all of that in at once. And with the visual, you can imagine both readings simultaneously. It's magic. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of magic, really. And it shows how important the whole design and layout is to conveying the meaning of yeah. this piece I think tell us a bit about Ruby then you said that her story you were a little bit more certain at, about at the beginning yeah I mean in an early version Ruby was still living at home gosh it went through quite a big change <laughs> she was in the very first version Ruby was still living at home and she was told she couldn't go on to university so uh, the story was at that cusp of her doing really well in her A-levels and wanting to go to university and the father telling her that she couldn't that she had to get married and so that's where Ruby's story really was and then I decided to change it because I just felt like Amber needs to be at home by herself she needed to feel really abandoned and I felt like that made Amber's character far sort of um uh the need for her to rebel was even stronger because she needed to feel like she was completely abandoned and on, and on her own. And therefore, Ruby's story took a little bit of a second sort of storyline, really. And uh, so I decided to pick it up that that's already happened to her. So she's already gotten married. And then it's about her 
because I didn't want it to feel like, oh, um, as soon as you're married, that's it, your life is over. So it's about her still continuing uh, in the life that she's made for herself, but that life's not over for Ruby and that she can still change it. And she's got a really loving husband who really wants to go on that journey with her. And I thought that was important. Otherwise I might be writing a story that's like all men are bad and all marriages are bad. And it couldn't, I didn't want it to be that. So yes, that's why and how Ruby's story kind of changed in the book from an early draft. Mm. There's a lot of positivity in that story. And as you say, the relationship, although it's it's one that grows and develops, it's not a negative thing in her life mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Um, just coming to something a little bit different now, I know that your partner's with Joe Coelho, and that means that there are two poets in your household (laughs) I wondered whether that was a good thing or a negative thing does it actually aid the creative process does it make it competitive uh what's it like (laughs) no it's it's a it's 100% a positive situation it has been slight it's slightly uh strange for me at the beginning I think there was um a sense of oh am I treading on his toes like this is it was always I was the actress he was the writer but he encouraged me so much to write, you know, from the first days when I met him. So it's been like, gosh, it's been 16 years. And uh, he, I remember him really early on saying, as an actor, you should be writing, you should be writing your own stuff. And I was like, no, I just want to be an actor and for people to write things for me. Um, and then as I started to get more and more disillusioned with the industry, then I sort of, I took his advice and I started writing and I, and I, and I wrote what I knew, which was the theatre. So I wrote plays, which still seemed quite different. It was like, no, he's writing books. I'm writing plays. It's still a bit different. But coming into now publishing, um, <clears throat> it's probably felt more strange for me than it has for him. But he's been nothing but supportive. And uh, it's really wonderful, actually. It's really, really wonderful. He reads all my drafts and I've always read all of his work. And it's just, it's really supportive and brilliant, actually. Mm-hmm. Do you read it aloud to each other or do you hand over a manuscript and say, what do you think of that? I hand over a manuscript and then I hide. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, he's far more confident handing, handing his work over to me. Um, but I'm still very shy of handing my work over to him because I think he's so, I think he's so brilliant. So I'm always very scared of what he'll say, but uh, trust it and uh, I'm thankful for it. Oh, interesting. Isn't there a sense in which being an actor is also about authorship? Uh, Do you not co-create with a playwright when you act a part? Is there an element of, of, when I say writing, I'm using it in its broader sense. I don't mean necessarily picking up a pen and writing, but in creating a part, is that that sort of writing? Yeah, definitely. And not one that I um, really appreciated at the time, I think. And it wasn't until I started writing plays, I remember saying to a director, because I, I, I really get imposter syndrome, and uh, the director sitting me down and saying, Manjeet, you've been an actor for 15 years. You know scripts, you know how to write. Because I think I sort of said, but I haven't done an MA in it, so what do I know? <laughs> And she said, you know, a hell of a lot more than somebody who's done an MA in writing. You've been working with scripts for 15 years. Um, So you know what it is to be a writer. So I don't think I really appreciated what it meant to bring characters alive and work with playwrights. Um, 
you know, because it really is a collaborative process. And I find that publishing is a collaborative process. And I remember saying that to my editor and she said, thank you so much for saying that because a lot of people don't think that. And I was like, oh no, it definitely is. It's a whole team effort. Yes, I'm writing it, but you know, everybody's working on it and helping, helping make this better. And also just uh, thinking about the acting uh, a little bit more, do you think that that has had an influence on the type of novel you've written because it works so well for a voice definitely definitely with this one I think the reason why I I started writing it in verse and it just came to me in verse I feel like it wasn't even a decision that I made I didn't sit down and say I'm going to write a first novel it just came out that way and I think it was because I was just seeing it as a piece of performance actually if I'm completely honest I was writing it as a piece of performance and I think that just came quite naturally to me because mm. of all the years in acting. It's maybe my comfort zone a little bit. Um, so for the next novels, they're not in verse. So I feel like I'm going out of my comfort zone now. <laughs> but um, certainly this one and the next one, I think I've stayed within my comfort zone in writing in verse. Okay, well, in that case, I'm sorry, you've just enticed me to <laughs> ask you what it is that the next piece is going to be. <laughs> So the next novel hopefully should be out next June. Um, and again, it is a YA novel in verse. Um, and it's about a friendship between a teenage girl living in Dover who's training to swim the channel and a friendship that she strikes up with a refugee uh, in Calais who's trying to get to the UK. Gosh, that sounds fascinating too. Manjeet, Rum Rebel is an incredibly powerful novel and I do thank you so much for joining me today to give us a more insight into uh, the background that lies behind it thanks for joining us in the reading corner thank you so much for having me thanks for listening to in the reading corner with just imagine if you have enjoyed this podcast you can find many more on the podcast section of our website justimagine.co.uk plus via itunes or soundcloud or your usual podcast provider Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.